0: And welcome everyone to the Atlas Society Asks and we'll get started in three, two, one. Hello everyone and welcome to the 31st episode of the Atlas Society Asks. I'm Jennifer Grossman, I'm CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways like our graphic novels. Anthem, um, our just published new graphic novel Red Pawn, it's available for order. This is galley. don't worry, I'll send you a nice brand new copy, uh, as well as our animated videos. Uh, My Name is Property, just published yesterday, and our next upcoming video is aptly My Name is Free Speech, because today we have with us one of the leading proponents and defenders of free speech, Michael Shermer. So I wanna remind all of you, exercise your free speech by typing in your questions for Michael into the Zoom chat or if you're joining us live on YouTube, just type your questions in to the chat section. Our Atlas Society gremlins will capture them and we'll try to get to as many of them as possible. So Michael Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine. He is the host of the Science Salon podcast and a presidential fellow at Chapman University where he teaches Skepticism 101. A prolific writer, he is the author of numerous New York Times bestsellers. His most recent book is giving the devil his due published uh, this year, in which the devil isn't Satan, but it's anyone who disagrees with you. And boy, I know a lot of people who disagree with me. So uh, we definitely want to give the devil his due. Um, Why Michael, Michael is going to talk about why it is in our rational self-interest to give disagreement its due. And uh, that's a very apt theme for our time. Michael, welcome again. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Jennifer. Nice to see you again. I think we've met a couple times at Freedom Fest, but we've never had a chance to have a long-form conversation, so I'm looking forward to this.
0: I, I, you know, I guess it just took a uh, pandemic and national lockdowns to uh, to bring us together, but right. hopefully this will be one of, of many conversations, and um, I feel like I've been having a conversation with you because I have been uh, reading your excellent book and listening to it on audio. I'm really enjoying your um, narration of it. So let's get straight to the, the book, Giving the Devil His Due. Uh, it's a defense of free speech. The subtitle, though, is Reflections of a Scientific Humanist. For the layman, what, what is scientific humanism?
1: <laughs> right, yeah. Most people just think of it as humanism, or maybe secular humanism, but uh, which was a movement that really began in the 1930s uh, with people like Bertrand Russell and and other uh, mostly leftists and liberals. And and humanism has always had kind of a left leaning political uh, slant. And and when I got into it in the uh, 70s and 80s, I felt like uh, I couldn't tick all of the boxes, and yet I'm still a humanist. So I've shifted to calling myself a, a scientific humanist or an Enlightenment humanist, uh, embracing the uh, classical liberal values of the Enlightenment, um, which is different than liberalism as it's used today. So um, what I mean is that science is the best tool we have for understanding reality, for answering the question, what is true? And and by science, I don't mean paleontology or botany. I mean the entire enterprise of reason, rationality, empiricism, experimentation, disputation, debate, uh, you know, open peer commentary, uh, peer review, uh, and all of that is, gets to the title of my book, is that none of us are smart enough to figure it all out on our own. You have to have other people that you engage with to test your ideas. Uh, because a lot of the times you could be going off the rails um, and unless you have somebody to bounce your ideas off of, Um, then you can skewer down some pathway and and never come back. And uh, so that kind of interactive nature of science, that kind of social aspects of it uh, indicate sort of cognitively, how difficult it is to to get at the truth. And so you have to have that interaction and that exchange, which requires you to listen to people that you don't agree with, especially them. Uh, It's easy to find people uh, to listen to and enjoy conversations with people that you already agree with, Right. So if you're liberal, you read the uh, New York Times. If you're conservative, you read the Wall Street Journal and we select our television radio uh, networks to reinforce our points. We read novels or books or or uh, go to Web pages that uh, already reinforce what what we believe. The problem with that is that the confirmation bias, you could just be getting reinforced for beliefs that are not even true simply because other people hold them. So you got to engage with people that disagree with you to find out just how strong your ideas are.
0: Well, that's very much um, near and dear to our hearts here at the Atlas Society. In fact, I think one of our most recently published um, pocket guides was David Kelly's Seven Habits of Highly Objective People, in which he provides practical tips of uh, not falling into the the confirmation bias. And uh, and you talked a little bit about your own journey, um, coming of age, grappling with these issues, and you sure have come along way um, when you were in college i understand from having read your books that uh you took christianity faith very seriously and you actually planned on becoming a theologian here you are uh a, a leading <laughs> proponent of skepticism so first if you would again just define the terms for us what what is uh skepticism as a professional or ideological perspective. And second, if you just fill us in a little bit about your backstory in terms of uh, this profound change and evolution in in your thinking.
1: Yeah, Um, well, by skepticism, we just mean a a critical thinking way of of addressing claims, a scientific way, using reason, rationality, empiricism, as I said, to any and all claims and not, not just Bigfoot and aliens and astrology and, and those kinds of things, although we, we do address those in skeptic, but also, uh, you know, political uh, uh, claims and economic claims and ideologies and, you know, any, any kind of belief can be challenged. And, and skepticism is not, it's not cynicism, it's not denialism, uh, it doesn't say ahead of time, this is what we are going to believe, uh, because that can then lead you down the wrong path. You have to have an open mind to a certain extent. And and so it depends on the claim. Now, in science, we start off with the null hypothesis. That is, we don't believe your hypothesis until you prove otherwise. So the burden of proof is on the person making the claim. Uh, and then I'll accept it if the evidence, you know, is proportional to the the, the claim itself. And, and that, that's kind of how science works. And, and um, so we, we never start off, you know, absolutely saying we're not going to believe it. We just say, well, we're skeptical until you show us otherwise. So, you, I, you know, and when I was at Pepperdine, I thought I was skeptical of evolution, even though I didn't really know much about it because I was a Christian. And I thought I was supposed to be skeptical of evolution, even though most Christians aren't now. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when I took a course in graduate school in evolutionary theory, uh, uh, you know, the scales fell from my eyes, so to speak. Uh, I was amazed about how much evidence there was for it and how little I actually knew about it. So that was the wrong kind of skepticism, just kind of ideological skepticism rather than this is interesting. It would be curious if it turns out to be true. Let's see what's if there's anything to it. And that's how most science works now. um, when i was in high school i became a born again christian really an influence of my peer group not my parents my parents weren't religious at all uh is my friends in high school and you know how that goes so there's not social pressure so much as just kind of more of a social contagion everybody was doing it so it's like okay and uh, the first clue to planted a seed of doubt in my mind was my buddy frank had been pushing me to to become a christian uh, but i ended up going to this other church with my buddy george because he had this really cute sister named Joyce. And I thought, well, this will be fun. At least I can hang out with her a little bit. And, but then I you know, I got into it. It was a Presbyterian church, and they did the calling up to the, to the front to accept Jesus as your Savior. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just go for it. So I did it. And uh, then I came back to school on Monday. I told my buddy Frank, I did it. I, I accepted Jesus. He goes, well, where? I said, at the Presbyterian church. He goes, oh, no, that's the wrong one. <laughs> he turns out he's a Jehovah Witness. And I thought, the wrong one? But you're a Christian, he's a Christian, you believe in Jesus, he believes in Jesus. Yeah, 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 but no, 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 that's the wrong one. I thought, okay, I'm going to keep that in the back of my mind, which I did as a kind of, you know, they all think they're the right one. So is it possible none of them are actually right? That that was sitting back there, but that took about seven years for me to work through all that, uh, as well as taking courses in um, sociology, social psychology, anthropology. And there you're, you're really uh, illuminated as to all the other belief systems that people hold that are different than yours, but they're just as confident as you are that they're right. So from as an anthropologist from Mars, looking at this objectively, which is the right one? How can I tell it's the Christian or the Jewish or the Muslim one or, or any of the other hundreds of religions? There's, there's no acid test. There's no like experiment we can run to say that's the right one. You know, like that's the vaccine that works, that one doesn't work because we ran these trials. There's nothing like that for religion. Like, oh, it turns out this is the right one, all the others are wrong. There's, not, there's no test like that we could run. So that's kind of, I kind of worked through that over the years and then uh, and, um, and, and just gave it up quietly. Uh, and that's kind of usually how it goes. You know, you plant a seed of doubt in somebody or it gets planted and they don't have a deconversion experience where they run around and tell everybody they don't believe anymore although maybe in the age of social media, that's exactly what people do, but I don't, I didn't do that. And, uh, and, and then I just got into science as a, as a way of, of thinking about the world. And in the middle of that, since it's the Atlas Society, I, at Pepperdine, I read, I read, you know, Atlas Shrugged. This isn't the the version I had. I had a, a 1972 version or something, which I can't find. It's in, it's in my, uh, at my office, I guess. And, um, and it wasn't until the late '80s that I, I, uh, I became a little more skeptical reading some of the, uh, po- her postmortem, uh, books. This one by Barbara Brandon, The Passion of Ayn Rand. it's a good uh, documentary or a good uh, dramatization film about that, and that too also was an eye opener. Since I had you, I'll, I'll, I'll share that with you. That, you know, of course, uh, Iran is very inspiring for young, uh, young adults, people in college and so on, because there's. Um, there's kind of a, a, a foundation of morality and objectivism without God, which I thought was interesting at the time because I remember thinking, you know, people see at Pepperdine here, they seem to like Ayn Rand, but she's an atheist. I mean, clearly an atheist. And here, this is a religious school and so on. And I thought, so there's a difference between religious beliefs and political beliefs. And, and, and actually, I think more Christians embrace her, even though she's an atheist, than liberals do, even though she's a woman. And I, I remember thinking, this is so weird. You know, it's like these, these liberals hate her. And, and here she is a champion that has her, the women characters in her novels are, you know, running transcontinental railroads. They're the CEOs of major corporations. You would think that liberals would go, yes, that's good that we have somebody making uh, women as the role models. But no. I thought, okay, that's really curious why that would be. Anyway, I, that, that was going through my mind at the same time. And, uh, but then I also was a little disturbed by the stuff that came out after her death with those biography, those memoirs about her kind of cult of personality and very much like, really it reminded me of religion. And I thought, mm, yeah, you know, it, it, objectivism has some good points, but also, you know, that worried me a little bit. It, it became too much like a religion.
0: Well, yeah, talk, talk to me a little bit about that, because I guess, um, although I'm, I'm coming up on, on five years running the Atlas Society, I guess I'm still relatively a newcomer uh, in the scheme of things. And I always kind of find it curious when people talk about uh, objectivism as a cult it certainly doesn't feel that way around the Atlas Society. Um, and yet, at the same time, I have found like a this hostility sometimes that I can't explain and that I have a hard time understanding. So maybe somebody with more of your perspective on these social movements can explain to me. You know, you're talking about mm. these these hus- these hostilities that that liberals. You know, who would you think um, a, a immigrant woman champion um, uh, in terms of her literary achievements had heroines that were sexually liberated that were Uh, running businesses, and yet they're so, um, so hostile to her work. Uh, And I I, I sometimes found the same thing, but (laughs) biggest pushback that I feel that I get is not from, from socialists, and believe me, I do get a lot of hate on, on the Atlas Society's work from people on the extreme left, but sometimes it seems I get even more from people that I would think I would agree with on 99% of the issues, but they uh, have you know objections to the way that that we approach um, promoting objectivism to young people. So you, you did address that a bit uh, in... In your book, you talked about this sort of puritanical purging. Uh, social movements yeah. turn, tend to turn in on themselves, and puritanical purgings of anyone who falls short of moral perfection. Uh, you talked about witch hunts in the 17th century, 20th century, Marxist feminist groups, and I, you know, I thought it was surprising even Ayn Rand's objectivist movement. Um, I mean, I do know a little bit about it. We do have a lot of trustees, a lot of our donors who were, you know, denounced or excommunicated in one way or another. But explain to us from your perspective on why such purifications, and purges, are among the worst things that uh, can happen in any social movement.
1: Yeah, you you you, you said it quite nicely there with uh, several examples, uh, to which I'd add, uh, you know, it looks like all social movements seem to go through this. Um, kind of purging of those that are not pure and where the disagreements seem to grow even larger within the group as opposed to that group versus some other group that's quite ideologically different. Uh, Maybe it's that, you know, we hurt the ones we're closest to or something or it's just more opportunistic uh, conflict seeking for whatever reason. Uh, The atheist movement's gone through this too. I mean, which is really weird because atheism isn't even a thing. We just don't believe in God. Full stop. Uh, But, um, you know, after Richard Dawkins' 2006 book, The God Delusion, um, the atheist movement kind of ramped up, got larger, and then there was a split. Like, are you a militant atheist or are you just sort of more of an agnostic atheist? Which um, Stephen Colbert called an agnostic is an atheist without balls. Come on, just say it. You don't believe. (laughs) <laughs> so in other words uh, are you less militant or more militant and then there was kind of purging of those that you know were not militant enough and then atheist plus movement took off which was the plus is social justice well and you know what that means so sort of far left progressive woke liberal values attached to atheism and if you don't hold those then you're not a pure atheist or real atheist or whatever, even though those things have nothing to do with atheism per se is just lack of belief in God. So that's happened, you know, in the feminist movement, Marxists, you know, and objectivists and so on. That just seems to be something that social groups do. And I think, again, it's sort of opportunistic and easy to do. And it's harder to, I guess stand up against the other side, which has, you know, um, marshaled many forces and has its own ideology that you disagree with, it's easier to just pick it, you know, minor differences within. I think there's some of that. And also infighting, jealousy, fiefdom, you know, fighting over fiefdoms and who's gonna control what. Uh, and sometimes money, you know, donors competing no. groups, you know, similar groups competing for same uh, space, uh, economic space and social space or whatever. There's some of that, I think. Um, and I have no doubt that whatever objectivism is today, I haven't followed it in a few years, but uh, it's probably not all that similar to uh, what it was in Ayn Rand's uh, time. That is when she ran the show. Uh, I suspect it's, it's much more mellow. You know, some of the people I've met, uh, you know, they don't seem to have that cult of personality going on. And I think it's you know it's okay. The, the point I make, you know, I have a chapter in my first book, "Why People Believe We're Things: The Unlikeliest yeah. Cult in History," uh, and um, there I, I make the point, you know, that it's it's okay to you know look at a belief system and, and 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 you don't have to denounce it completely or accept it 100%. You know, maybe there's six points you like and three you disagree with and six you're not sure about or whatever. That's okay. You know, uh, you know, but 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 in terms of like how these things play out online, especially it's so black and white and binary um, that, you know, there's little room for nuance. And that's, I think, also a problem. Again, why yeah. we need to give the devil his due, because, um, you know, there's a lots lots of devils. And uh, like, for example, I, um, uh, you know, my students at Chapman, they, these are right out of high school, 18 years old. Most of them are pretty liberal Um, They're, they're mostly pro-choice. All right. So when I ask them, what are the best arguments that the pro-lifers have? They don't even really know what the other arguments are. Uh, You know, well, they hate women or, you know, they want to control women. It's like, those aren't arguments that that, that you're impugning motive and maybe that's right. But, but that, that's not what I'm asking. What are their arguments? You know? So then I have them go watch some videos like Ben Shapiro's videos, defending the pro-life position. And it's like, Oh, hmm, okay. Those are pretty good arguments. Right. So this was John Stuart Mill's point. Uh, You know, he who knows only his own side of the argument doesn't even know that, Uh, you know, your pro choice uh, position is not very strong. If you don't know what the pro life arguments are, if you know what they are and you're still a pro choicer, then your position is even stronger. So that's the crux of it.
0: I, I do think it, it also comes down to a question of, of confidence and, um, and a certain fearlessness. And you talked about religion um, before and why Ayn Rand's literature does, in fact, uh, draw so many fans from people of religious faith. I've written about this in, for example, my Wall Street Journal op-ed, um, Can You Love God and Ayn Rand? And I talked about people like Andy Puzder, who we've had on this show, Randy Wallace, um, very religious people. They love Ayn Rand. It's, you know, the atheism thing just didn't really cross uh, cross their radar. And um, I just came back from a huge conference, thousands of st- students down in Palm Beach. A lot of them are um, evangelical or Christian. And most of them hadn't heard of Ayn Rand. So that was wonderful because I have the opportunity to introduce them to um to her work for the first time, uh, but, but there were, you know there is some concern, oh, isn't she an atheist? I'm like, well, it's a great book, you know? I mean, look, you are on your journey, you have your religious faith, if you're confident in it, I don't see any reason for you to be fearful, right? Of uh, exposing yourself, you know, we're not a virus. Um, we're not going to yeah. like, you know, turn you <laughs> into something that, that you're not. Um, but uh, I, I do want to encourage those of you that are watching, we have this wonderful opportunity um, with Michael Shermer. Again, he's one of the most articulate uh, defenders of free speech. So please use that free speech, ask your questions. I'm going to get to as many of them as possible. I do have a, a great question here from Paul Tonner of uh, Ontario, Canada. We have love our followers from Canada, some of the strongest um, objectivists uh, and uh, people that are, are not pushing back against socialist um, ways of, of doing things come from Canada. And Paul um, asks, free speech is a subject, is subject to reasonable and justified limits in every society. Uh, in the USA, for example, inciting violence uh, is not free speech. Um, as you have pointed out in the past, um, but hate speech is free speech. So Paul would like you to please comment on the significance of cultural history, for example, slavery in the United States, when making difficult decisions on what are and what are not reasonable and justified limits on free speech, Michael.
1: Yeah, he makes a good point there. Of course, we um, we censor our own speech all the time. Uh, I don't walk around the world just pointing out people's uh, shirts that I hate, or or uh, dresses that I think are ugly, or you know whatever. You just you don't you don't want to be a, a rude asshole uh, in life and and just blurt out whatever comes to mind. We we all self censor for for really good reasons, and that's fine. But that that's not of course what the First Amendment has to do with just government imposition on uh, citizens' free speech. Mainly, of course, originally this was. Uh, squelch to prevent criticisms of the government itself. And all governments have done this, and including our own. So I opened the book with uh, the most famous uh, decision of all in the history of the First Amendment in the United States, uh, that of uh, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in the Schenck versus the United States case. Everyone will know the quote. Uh, This is in his final decision, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. Well, what was this? This, this evil deed, these evil words that um, this case had to do. Charles Schenck was the head of the Socialist Party in Philadelphia and he was handing out pamphlets to draft age men in, in, on the eve of the United States entry into the First World War uh, and telling them that um, it's unconstitutional for the government to uh, confiscate your body and send you off to die, essentially a form of slavery, he argued. And when you read the pamphlets, they're very short. You can find them online. Uh, it's a pretty good argument, you know. The the thirteenth amendment and the fourteenth amendments really protect you from being owned by somebody else and controlled by them. And the draft conscription is basically the government saying, "We are going to own your body for the next two or four years or whatever, and you're going to do exactly what we tell you to do, including kill other people or be killed." And so his argument, you know, seemed pretty reasonable. But that's the kind of thing that governments, you know, are worried about because then they can't, you know, run wars, you know, r- a rough shot o- over their own citizenry. And uh, so that that the, so this is getting at the crux of isn't hate speech a form of inciting violence and therefore we have uh, have a constitutional duty to stop it. No, because the moment you set up that category, I consider this person's speech to be a clear and present danger. OK, then it's so easy to expand the category pretty much anything anybody says that i don't like is a clear and present danger and a threat to me and uh, you know as you know a lot of uh, uh, millennials today consider language to be a form of violence it, the equivalent of physical violence and so that the moment you set up legal precedents like that then that opens the door for the government to just say well pretty much any criticism of the government is obviously a clear and present danger. We can't, uh, we can't allow these, uh, this, these dangerous terrorists or whatever to do something, so we have to stop people from saying things and whatnot. It's, it's too easy to, to expand the category. So that, that's the argument against it. And historically, really, it's very rare that uh, somebody gives a speech and it's followed by violence. Um, you know, of course, you can point to Hitler and say, "Look, he gave these uh, rousing speeches, and look what happened." Yes, but you know, not everybody's Hitler. In fact, most people are not Hitler, and most speeches that people give, they don't lead to violence. You know, it's very, very rare, but it's very not rare for governments to censor people on that premise. So we have to be very careful about that.
0: All right, so uh, Steve Chapman, hopefully that answered your question also about hate speech. Um, if you've got another take on it, let us know. Uh, you've got a big admirer, you've got many admirers here, um, Michael, including Bill McLaughlin, who says he's read many of your books, had the good fortune to meet you in New York several years ago uh, at the talk you gave at the New York Academy of Science. Sciences. He says he's mm-hmm. admired your ad- Admission that some of your views have changed over the years, um, including changes that you've had on uh, climate change and Second Amendment. And uh, Bill would like to know, are there any more recent, previously strongly held views on which you have changed, um, are in the process of changing? And if not, uh, Michael, I might want to suggest one, which is that you, um, you decide to maybe, I don't know revisit your uh, objections to Ayn Rand and the cultishness of, uh, you okay, know, the, the infighting and maybe become you know, just, <laughs> I don't know, but anyway, I'll let you answer that.
1: I, I have to kind of revisit all this uh, over the next week anyway, because I'm, uh, on my podcast next week, I'm, I'm uh, co- having a conversation with uh, David Sloan Wilson. He's an evolutionary biologist and now a novelist, and he's written a novel called Atlas Hugged. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you've seen this. I, I I haven't read it. I'm going to have to read it this week. Uh, but it's kind of a critique of objectivism and Ayn Randism, but larger critique of capitalism and free markets. And I I know what his argument is going to be about. You know, the necessity of collective action to solve certain social problems and so on. So I I will I will revisit it under under that pretext. By the way, let me note just um, on the previous uh, callers comments about hate speech again we're just talking about the government i'm not saying that we should all run around and use the n-word just because we're free to do so Uh, don't you know again don't be a dick don't don't be nasty don't be an asshole you know just uh, it's okay to say no it's not censorship to you know to to be respectful of other people and and so on and you'll get much further that way in terms of conversations um so there's that um, and, uh, okay, now I, I forgot the, 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 the colors. He, he was asking
0: about, you know, uh, other than some of the previously cited issues, whether Oh, change my something... mind, yes, change my yeah. mind. Yes.
1: Okay, I, the, the latest one I've been thinking about, I, I, I don't know what the answer is to this, but it has to do with this question is to what extent we're gullible and we easily follow leaders, you know, cults or ideologies, and we just kind of fall right into it. And we're super susceptible to social media, like Facebook, uh, you know, pushing the you know, news feed to us, and, and 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 we're easily hackable, like by the Russian bots and things like that. Or are we naturally more skeptical? And it takes a lot to, to get us to to you know change our minds or follow you know some cult leader. And I've been thinking about that uh, in the con- in my entire career. I've been trying to understand the whole Nazi phenomenon, how the Holocaust happened, how you convert. Uh, you know, rational, intelligent, educated, cultured people in a matter of years to being goose-stepping, you know, uh, genocidal Nazis. And now at the moment, I'm beginning to think m- maybe most of them didn't become Nazis in this sense that, you know, Hitler never had a majority. He entered um, office uh, on, a, on a minority party. But they had multiple parties so he was able to do that. And then through basically violence or the threat of violence, he got total power and once you have total power, then you can control the press and you can squelch any critics, uh, critics by putting them in concentration camps. So two things happened. One, there was this spiral of silence, this kind of pluralistic ignorance, as it's called, where maybe everybody thinks that everybody else believes, even though that most of them don't believe. And then in the famous example of this, when the studies were done, is you know, asking college uh, kids, you know, do you like binge drinking? Privately, they all say, "No, I don't really like it. It's you know, it doesn't feel good." But public, but they say, "But but I know everybody else likes it, so I go along with it." So basically, everybody's doing something. No, not, not no one of them really wants to do. Okay, that's the kind of spiral of silence or pluralistic ignorance. And the second one is that can be broken if you have somebody that says something that speaks up and says, "Wait a minute, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Look, he's butt naked." oh okay it's okay to say what we're all thinking right but if you lock everybody up or if you threaten violence against citizens that might speak up or in a less dramatic example today in cancel culture if you threaten to cancel people um then they're gonna they're gonna go silent they're just gonna keep their mouth shut and that's really very dangerous because there you can have an ideology hover in the in, in midair Uh, sustained for years by those two forces, the spiral of silence and the threat of of, um, uh, 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 of violence against you if you speak out. And so I think actually most Germans were not Nazis. I think most people don't fall right into cults. I mean, we think of cults, I've written so much about this, but they're very rare. You know, the Jim Jones uh, with the, uh, you know, the the mass suicide or the Heaven's Gate cult, Scientology, maybe uh, some of the extreme former, uh, uh, for, um, for, formal, sorry, Mormonism, fundamental Mormonism. You know, some of those, but, but those are very rare. If you think of like the tens of thousands of, you know, self-help groups and, and, you know, nonprofits and organizations and church groups, and there's tens of thousands of them. And almost none of them are dangerous cults, right? You know, they're just people just trying to do good things or improve themselves or whatever, so at the moment, I used to think we're very gullible, but now I'm beginning to think maybe not so much. Now, just a final point: since the 2016 election, there's been this meme that um, you know that Hillary should have won, and that the whole thing was hacked by the Russians or social media, uh, you know, corrupted the youth and they voted the wrong way or whatever. You know, that's not giving much credit to adults as rational calculators, as you know, rational voters. And it also kind of implies that we're just like pinballs bouncing around our our world out of control or under the control of these programmers that work for facebook and google and apple and instagram and so on like like they're the masters of our fate Uh, i think i don't i I think that's very uh, questionable and the research now shows over the last four years by cognitive psychologists that study this is that that those social media sites had very little influence on the election. Most people didn't get their news from those, or if they did, they, it didn't change their mind. At, at, at worst, it reinforced what they already believed, but it didn't get people to vote. Instead of voting for Hillary, they voted for Trump. And the, the, my favorite example of this is the, um, the Pizzagate, you know, Comet Ping-Pong, a you know, place where the alleged pedophil- pedophilia ring was being run by Hillary and other celebrities out of a pizzeria in, you know, Pennsylvania. Right. And, um, you know, to what extent that people really believe that, well, one guy did, he went there with his rifle, right. At least he had the the courage of his convictions. Cause if you really think there's a pedophile ring. You should do something about it. Call the police. Right. So I think most people really didn't believe it or if they did, it was more like, yeah, yeah, of course those liberals, they're, they're crazy. They do shit like that. Um, and, but if I point out to somebody, you know, that's not true. There's no pedophile ring at the Comet ping pong place like the guy discovered when he went there. Those people are not gonna now go, oh, in that case, I think I will vote for Hillary. Now that I know that that conspiracy theory is a bunch of baloney. No, they were never gonna vote for Hillary in the first place, right? So I, I, I don't think uh, uh, that, that social media has that kind of power. There's research also on, uh, on political advertising. It's largely a waste of money. You're not gonna capture new votes. You're mostly just reinforcing the base. And even corporate advertising is probably mostly a waste of money. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of companies like Tesla, they don't do any advertising at all. And they're the most successful car company ever, right? So um, it, it's not clear that you know we're that gullible. Anyway, that's Interesting. my latest.
0: Interesting, um, yeah. I, I, We may not be that gullible. The other thing that you were talking about in terms of uh, the rise of National Socialism um, in Germany and the threat of violence, I think there also may be something to be said for the downsides of charisma and charisma leadership and the Mm. thirst that people have for charismatic leaders, um, particularly in times of uncertainty or times of self-doubt. And, uh, you know, when there is somebody that comes in with charisma, which is a very specific quantity, quality in leadership, um, it, it can be enormously powerful and enormously helpful. But in terms of what you talk so much about, which is encouraging everybody to come forward and give their input into the pool of meaning and voice their concerns or, or add their suggestions. When you have a particularly charismatic leader, it can sometimes just uh, discourage people um, to, to come forward and say, I have a different you know, solution for this possibly.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're a social primate species. Um, we're uh, easily influenced by those around us and leaders who are you know, attractive, articulate, funny, engaging, you know, and make good eye contact, they're good speakers. They really do have um, a lot of power over, uh, uh, over people. They do. Uh, we, we know, you know, from studies that, uh, you know, taller politicians are more likely to get elected and more attractive politicians are more likely to get elected. I mean, these things are you know, irrelevant to the job and yet it still seems to matter um, you you know, it's just, it's just part of life. You know, it's a, it's not a white privilege, I guess it's attractiveness privilege or a height privilege or whatever, you know, there's, but there's a hundred of those. And, uh, yeah, I mean, even, you know, Trump, uh, you know, for all his flaws, you know, he's, he's a funny guy, he's entertaining. He really knows how to give a speech and, and, uh, you know, the run-up to the election, you know, he was just on, you know, full coal for, you know, three, four hours a night. It was astonishing. It was like a Springsteen concert, just goes and goes and goes, you know, like the Energizer Bunny. And I thought, boy, you know, most of these Republicans he beat back in the primary in 2015, it's like they just did not have that kind of thing. You could see it. And I think it is um, of the many issues that will go into explaining the Trump phenomenon. Uh, that's certainly one of them. You know, he, the, the other guys were just so boring. Uh, Megyn Kelly makes this point, you know, when she was at Fox. Um, that, you know, when, when he was first coming on the scene and Roger Ailes said, we got to put a camera crew on this guy. And and Megan and some of the other hosts were like, well, shouldn't we cover the other candidates? I mean, there's 15 of them or whatever. And Ailes was like, are you kidding me? They're boring. We, we got to get ratings. I want a camera crew on Trump 24-7. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's television. Yeah.
0: No, it's, and it reminds me also of something uh, that my parents, who absolutely cannot stand uh, Trump um, had said to me when uh, during the, the campaign and they said uh, oh gosh he's so, sort of a cult. I, I think I was saying hey we, we actually have Trump uh, truck parades in Malibu okay which was just uh, a, a phenomenon in and of itself and my mother was saying oh it's a, it's a cult don't you think it's like a cult and I said you know let's look at that word and why would people why would it inspire such enthusiasm and it's it, there is the entertainment factor i think that and the energy factor that you were saying but when you think of like a cult and you're talking about a figure who takes you know uh, arrows or is crucified or you know that has um adversarial forces that, that want to demolish them and yet they, they keep on coming. And so I, I do think that might have been also a part of the factor of the charisma was that there were so many forces, so much hostility, and yet, you know, boom, back up. <laughs> uh, and also so. standing
1: up to the standing up to the radical crazy left with their cancel culture and, and wokeness and political correctness and censorship of speech and microaggressions and safe spaces and you know, the, you know, deplatforming of speakers you don't like, you know, that that that's not liberalism. That's illiberalism. I mean, the classical liberalism or liberalism in the old school sense was they were the defenders of free speech, you know, even in the 80s, when it was the right that was obsessed with pornography and prostitution and Playboy magazine and the, the Hustler magazine case that went to Supreme Court. That you know, was it was mostly the right that were, you know, uh, concerned about, you know, censoring those kinds of things, because it could corrupt the youth and so on. Rock, rock lyrics were supposed to be dangerous, satanic and, and all that. And and now it's kind of flipped. And so it's easy to see, again, another factor in the Trump phenomenon is so many of my conservative friends, you know, were just delighted every time he stood up against the left, because most people are afraid to say anything, because they, they, they may be canceled at their job or whatever, and uh, and but Trump didn't care, and, and you know, so there was kind of a, a, a sense of like, this guy is saying what I'm thinking, and I'm afraid to say, and he is fearless when he says it. He doesn't care, and uh, so I think, again, that's a, a second factor. I think, yeah, sort of a, a proxy
0: that even maybe you say, oh, I don't agree with this particular uh, position, but I certainly um, I, I resent feeling intimidated. I resent feeling censored. I resent uh, being pushed around, and uh, I resent just also the implications about my motives, and uh, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, being being called yeah. the, when, the when horrible call about things. when you every, call half of
1: <laughs> when you call half of Americans racist, misogynist, bigots, and they're not. That's going to backfire, you know. People know what's in their hearts, and most of us today in 2020 uh, are not racist bigots like people were, say, a century ago or half a century ago. You know, we've made a lot of progress, but if you come out as a far left progressive and say, you know, America's you know a racist pit of hell and everybody is just you know rotten to the core, th- that's not going to serve your your case well. And of course, people like Hannity and. And Tucker Carlson, they're, they're going to feature this every night. Like, look with these loonies on the left. That's what you're going to get if you vote for any any liberal, any Democrat, anywhere. That's what they're all like. Of course, they're not. But <laughs> that's what happens when you when you push it that far.
0: So uh, Chris DeMarco on YouTube says, Hey, Michael, do you believe there should be a federal department of information that would work towards improving our, quote, idea hygiene Uh, end quote, and justified knowledge acquisition.
1: No, I would be against that because that's a government uh, agency. What has happened uh, just, um, you know, sort of bottom up grassroots is a kind of a fact-checking culture. Since the 2016 election, you know, like PolitiFact, these places were already around, but they're in high demand now. You know, Snopes, PolitiFact, you know, there's a half a dozen of these political fact checking sites that fact check, especially Trump, but, but all politicians now, uh, in real time, while they're giving the speech, you can watch the the fact checkers checking these. Okay. That's a, that's a market solution to a, you know, collective problem that we may or may not have So again, I'm not even convinced it's a massive problem. There's this documentary. Everybody was going crazy about on Netflix called the, the social dilemma. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, it, it, it elevated these programmers at Facebook and the other social media sites into these godlike programmers of human behavior and thought. Like you know that, and, and the one guy, this Tristan Harris uh, guy, who used to work for Facebook, I think, um, you know, he he kind of made himself like he was self self flagellating, like he was J. Robert Oppenheimer with blood in his hands because he invented the n- nuclear weapons. Uh, no, sorry, dude, you know, the like button on Facebook is not, uh, you know, the Hiroshima bomb. <laughs> it's not the same. And, uh, you know, that, and it gets to that, you know, to what extent do we have free will? Because I believe we do. And most of us should have uh, responsibility over our choices and actions. And although there's influencing forces in the world, you can turn them off, right? You don't have to stay on Facebook, they're not making you, <laughs> you know, so that's a different kind of thing than say, the moment you set up a government agency whose job it is to start screening what's true, you know that's that that's very dangerous because it's going to be hijacked by politicos with an agenda. So, a uh, having multiple places and and more of a culture of truth seeking that's part of a community. This is what um, makes science so effective, even though it has its flaws. Uh, is that there's a Uh, A kind of um, norms of honesty in explaining what it is you did to get your uh, research and exactly how you collected the data and who funded it and what you did and how many people there were and all the different conditions so somebody else could replicate it and when they can't replicate it it calls into question well what did exactly you do because we can't replicate this and you know as you know we're going through something of a replication crisis in science, not across the board, mainly social science and, and medical science. And, and these are. And the reason for this is because these are super hard problems that we're studying, and they have multiple variables interacting at the same time, and you try to control for them so you can see which one is, is the most powerful one. But as a result, you end up um, kind of filtering out the, some of the findings that don't um, turn out to, to be statistically significant, and then you've missed a lot. Right. So uh, but but even within that, there's books about this and papers and conferences and scientists themselves are saying, oh, OK, we got a we got a problem here in our house. We got to clean our house here. And that's a norm of you know, correction as opposed to we need the government to swoop in and get in there and break up Facebook and, you know, and d- decide what we should hear. Oh, very, very bad idea. I do not want government bureaucrats screening my news <laughs> or my information. So, hey,
0: everybody, we've got about 11 more minutes. I want to thank everybody for this has been, I think one of the top engagement um, interviews that we've had, credit goes to to you, Michael, Um, but I wanna thank everybody who's asking these great questions and make my job a lot easier. I also wanna thank, I see a lot of our our donors actually, small new lapsed uh, donors here in the audience and remind all of you, who enjoy this kind of uh, forum and enjoy our graphic novels and our um, social media and our animated videos. One more day of a double match from our board. So um, after you watch this, go to our site. I think we'll even put it into the the chat uh, right here. So I did want to ask you one more question of of my own, although I've seen similar themes um, in our chat feed here. What what's happened with science and trust in science uh, throughout the, the pandemic? Um, it seems like it's become very politicized. Um, people, you know, don't even necessarily trust the objectivity um, of of previously very uh, legitimate and credible scientific sources like the Lancet and and others. So, are you are you concerned that uh, trust?
1: science has, has taken yeah.
0: a hit mildly or
1: is it con- maybe unjustified yeah. no well I'm, I'm mildly concerned about the public perception of science but in part it's been revealing because um you know it's a hard problem to solve and again as, as where we began no one's omniscient uh, no one can, can can create the world from anew by themselves uh, no one can figure out super hard problems by themselves and the uh, you know the coronavirus the sars cov2 uh, Virus leading to COVID-19 disease. Um, that's turned out to be a much harder problem than we thought. And even with teams of, you know, researchers um, and so on, this is why the story seems to be constantly changing. It's changing because new information comes in. And you know, as much as I admire and respect. Um, Anthony Fauci, you know, he's not omniscient either. <laughs> Nobody is, right? So, um, you know, you get this kind of public responses, you know, why should we trust you guys? You, you know, last month you said this, now you're saying it's that, what are you gonna say next month? Well, we're gonna say whatever it is based on new information, that's just the way it goes. And, uh, and yet, nevertheless, here we are a year later, not even a year later, and we have, you know, what, two, almost three vaccines uh, being pushed out into the marketplace very quickly. That to me is is pretty remarkable, almost miraculous. That shows that science really does work. And again, you get, uh, maybe you have a hundred theories and it's whittled down to three, two or three, You know, in terms of its origin, its spread and so on. That happens by this kind of winnowing out of ideas. So you have kind of this free floating marketplace of ideas where people are competing to get theirs out there. But if you don't have the evidence, you can have a big name or whatever, it doesn't matter. If you don't have evidence, then it's, at some point you're gonna fall by the wayside because that it's just not true, it doesn't work. And uh, that to me is encouraging.
0: And I let me just say more
1: broadly, sorry.
0: No, I was just gonna say, so I did, think that, that it's, it's a question uh, of not just possible um, waning trust in, in science, but also I think a waning trust in uh, the media and the mainstream media, which I think a lot of people feel is uh, selectively, um, choosing to highlight some science o- over others or to suppress some science because it doesn't fit with an overall uh, sort of editorial agenda.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that has happened. And that's a problem, uh, but it's a problem that's easily fixable uh, again. in And the, in the, you'll like this, you know, the kind of free marketplace of ideas where new journals come up or new, new sources, sure. or, and that has happened. You know, and and I'm encouraged by the increase in the podcast community and also other forms of content consumption uh, are so readily available. And the pandemic has, you know, sort of pushed people into finding new sources of information because we have a lot of free time. And, uh, you know, so audible.com with books and, and you know, the great courses, uh, plus.com, one of my sponsors, you can listen to thousands of lectures. And uh, and and all the online news sources, you know. So we don't. We're no longer dependent on the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And oh boy, I hope one of the two of them gets it right. You know, there's a hundred places, a thousand places you can get news from. And so again, rather than having some Department of Information clarity and truth, you know, in an Orwellian sense by the government, let's just have you know a hundred news sources or a thousand, and you take up some responsibility for your own. Uh, content consumption and, and do a little homework. You know, it's all right. <laughs> you know, yes. I have a little more faith in people that, you know, that, that, and also give them responsibility. Um, I, I think this idea of breaking up Facebook and you know, or Google is just a terrible idea. For, first of all, by the time this wins through the courts, it's going to be 15 years and they won't even be the dominant uh, corporations anymore anyway. <laughs> I made this point in an earlier book about the Microsoft, Lawsuit by the government uh, as as a monopoly because they bundled Net, Netscape into their software. You know, by the time that lawsuit was done, no one was using Netscape anyway. I mean, it's just crazy, right? So, uh, you know, that's again, I think there's easy solutions to these potentially disturbing problems.
0: Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think more more competition is good. You were talking about yeah, there's other sources of information, other sources of reporting. Um, beyond the Washington Post, the New York Times. Um, now there's even for those who are, I mean, previously Fox News kind of had, you were talking about uh, Roger and had a, a lock, you know, not, not a lock per se, but really it was the place to go uh, for 50%, you know, of, of the, the yeah. country in terms of their politics. Um, I spent the day yesterday, and I'm in San Francisco now, that I was. Uh, with my friend Chris Ruddy um, in Palm Beach at Newsmax. And, you know, wh- whatever you may think of Fox or Newsmax, I mean, wow, how, how great that you, you have these new players that are coming in, that are innovating, that are providing uh, alternatives. So I think that's all, that's all to the good. Um, so you you sound relatively optimistic, Michael. I've got to say, uh, even <laughs> though this is, we're, we're rounding out 2020, uh, it's been a challenging year but i'm seeing a smile on your face and i'm seeing you kind of saying no we we don't need you know all of these regulations uh there there are good things i think so i
1: i i am optimistic by nature but i i think the evidence for it is pretty good i mean first of all let's just start with trump uh you know so four years later we're not at you know we're not at war with any new countries we're you know getting our troops out of foreign wars which is good you know, the apocalypse didn't happen. Uh, You know, I'm pretty confident he's not going to have the Second Amendment people surround the White House on January 20th and refuse to come out. I don't think any of that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, the Constitution is held steady. And, you know, yes, he planted the court with uh, conservative judges, but all presidents try to do that for their their team. And uh, and yet they didn't bail him out when he appealed to them to overturn the election results. they didn't. so you know there's a lot of good reasons politically why it wasn't as bad as everybody thought it would be and uh, and any, even in the pandemic, you know' it's a, it's a sizable number that have died but orders of magnitude less than the Spanish flu a century ago. it could have been that but it didn't so that's good. and uh, you know I, I do think a lot of good things will come out in the next couple of years. I think there were a lot of businesses and industries that were kind of on the margin anyway. And, you know, they'll, they'll shake out now because there's just not the kind of support for it. A lot of the colleges that were kind of just barely hanging on that had massive bureaucracies of administration. Uh, a, lot, a lot of that fat has to be trimmed, which is good for college education, I think. You know, more teachers and more focus on students rather than administration and bureaucracy. Uh, that's good, not just for government, for, but for private corporations as well. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a lot of good reasons to be positive.
0: Yeah, well, our uh, honoree at our gala uh, in October in Malavu, where we, by the way, did uh, live rapid antigen testing for all 140 att- attendees, not one single uh, positive wow. case of COVID, but we honored uh, Peter Diamandis, um, who makes the case right. for a da- data driven optimism and uh, talked about putting things into context and a lot of the um, The things, the changes that you've seen, many of of them very, very painful um, uh, and certainly very infuriating, you know, in in cases where people are feeling that they're being given unequal treatment um, by uh, sort of whimsical political authorities um, who are not holding themselves to the same standards, but um, but but also in more of a macro level, seeing uh, the acceleration of changes, economic changes that, that have been happening um, for the past decade. And so uh, without, you know, being Pollyannish or burying our heads in the sand, I, you know, we focus a lot on gratitude here at the Atlas Society. And uh, we, we do work on seeing it as a rationally self-interested value and principle um again because you need to find ways to fortify yourself and uh we are wired to focus on the negative and to try to to look around kind of say okay what do i got that's working for me and how can i um focus on that and build my sense of agency and get stronger for the next thing that that's ahead so uh we certainly feel that way at the atlas society it's been it's been a great year in terms of growth uh in terms of fundraising in terms of engagement Uh, and it's been a great year and finally getting together with you michael i want to encourage everybody this is an awesome book again i also really like the um i like the audible read and uh michael where can we follow you give us your your feeds your deets how
1: do we? Keep on <laughs> oh, well, top Skeptic, of skeptic.com is the, yeah, skeptic.com is the webpage for the magazine and the society. Uh, you know, we're a, a 501c3 nonprofit science education yes. organization that publishes Skeptic and does the podcast and so on, or just michaelshermer.com and Amazon has my books and Science Salon is the podcast. Although we're changing the name next week to the Michael Shermer Show because that seems to be a lot, a lot of podcasters are just using their name. Anyway, it's, neither here nor there. It's just conversations with mostly non, non, uh, non-fiction non authors. And uh, yeah, so that's it. Skeptic.com is the best uh, you know portal into my work.
0: Wonderful. Well, we will be uh, sharing this on all of our social media platforms. We'll be shopping it up and uh, putting okay. putting memes out there, uh, getting people's attention, linking back to to these deeper dive um pieces of content. So, uh, so we really appreciate everybody. I really uh, thank you again for all of the great uh, engagement this week. Um, Everyone, thank you also for considering supporting Michael's work or the work of the Atlas Society. And I'll see you guys next year. (laughs) I will see you for our, uh, our live weekly webinar next week with my buddy, uh, Phil Kirpin. So, um, We will see you then, Michael. Great to see you and I hope to see you. Thanks
1: for having me on. You're welcome. In
0: person. Nice to see you. Yes. (laughs) Take care, everyone.